I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hey, Mark, great to see you. Hello, Miriam. How's it going? It is going well. I am particularly excited for our discussion today with Oren Etzioni, someone who I've known for some time, and I am really impressed with both his deep insight, his many, many years, decades of experience in this field, and his ability to break down what he's working on, what's important, and what the limits of AI are in such clear terms for everybody to understand it. Absolutely. I think um, this is going to be a great episode, and there, there's so many questions I want to ask Oren, so let's just dive right in. Let's do it. Today, we are so pleased to be joined by Dr. Oren Itzioni, the Chief Executive Officer at AI2, the Allen Institute for AI, a nonprofit that offers foundational research, applied research, and user-facing products. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of Washington and a venture partner at Madrona Venture Group. He has won numerous awards and has founded or co-founded several companies, including Faircast, which was acquired by Microsoft and uses algorithms to recommend when and if to buy airline tickets. He has written over 100 technical papers, provides commentary on AI for the New York Times, Wired, Wall Street Journal, Nature. He has helped to pioneer some of the pivotal functions we now rely on, including meta, research, meta search, online comparison shopping, machine reading, and through it all, he remains an AI optimist, and we are so delighted to have him on our show today. Oren, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to it. So you are not new to this field. You completed your first machine learning project, if my research is correct, in 1988 as part of your master's thesis at Carnegie Mellon. What chose, what led you? What chose you, what led you to choose this field? And, and how has your focus changed over your career? Well, first of all, Miriam, your research is, is correct. I, I like to joke that uh, I've been working on big data uh, for so long that I started, it was just little data, and, uh, <laughs> and it grew over time. For me, it really actually started in high school, and uh, Douglas Hofstetter, who's uh, uh, a phenomenal author, uh, wrote this book, uh, Gödel Escher Bach, that was uh, all the rage uh, at the time. It talked about beta mathematics and music, and also about AI. And it really got me thinking about what ultimately is one of the most fundamental scientific questions across all of science and maybe all of philosophy as well, which is what is the nature of mind? And for me as a techie person, it was natural to ask, how do we build a mind? How do we create that in a computer? That's just such a great story, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dive into various pieces of that. Um, a lot has happened since 1988, and um, and and here you are, still on the cutting edge of it all. So I want to go into that question of what is the nature of mind. Uh, you have have written in 2020 that um, the term machine learning is a misnomer, and I believe you said, if my research is correct, that to say that machines learn is like saying that baby penguins know how to fish. Can you tell us what you meant by that and, um, and, and kind of how you see um, this question of what the nature of mind is being hashed out and, and, and redefined by the advent of AI? 
absolutely. So let me start with uh, your, your first point. Um, really, our field is uh, is full of, of misnomers. And in fact, there was just recently a, a Wall Street Journal column by uh, Christopher Mims talking about how artificial intelligence isn't all that intelligent. Basically, we have uh, quite grandiose uh, sounding terms. But when you double click on what's going on, you find out that it's not nearly as grandiose as it appears. So uh, in the case of machine learning, the point I made is if you think about who formulates the learning problem, who creates the data, who labels the data, who defines the uh, algorithms, the neural network architecture, uh, what have you, and who iterates throughout it all when something doesn't work to get it to work better, that's all humans. So really the machines are doing what you might call uh, the last mile of learning. They're making the uh, statistical computations uh, once everything has been framed and, and put into place. And that's exactly what happens with penguins. Uh, it's the parent penguin that goes and figures out where to get the fish. They corral them, they catch them, and then they uh, bring it back to the nest. And all the baby uh, penguin does is consume the regurgitated morsel out of the parent penguin's mouth, literally, the last mile, the last inch of that, that's what the baby penguin does. So does the baby penguin fish? Of course not. It's the parent penguin that fishes. And likewise, do machines learn? Of course not. Humans uh, put everything together so machines will learn. And just to apply that in a context uh, that most people will be familiar with, think about AlphaGo. There was so much about how machines, AI, defeated Lee Sedol. The, the Go world champion, who's of course, you know, completely brilliant. When I looked at that, I said, no, it's not machines that defeated Lisa Dull, but a, an extremely talented team at uh, DeepMind uh, and at Google, they built something, then they pushed the button and that's something defeated Lisa Dull. So it's a very, very different dynamic. If you think about the people that are so very involved in AI. Warren, I so appreciate how you have such a deep understanding for what is and is not happening in AI and such a clear way of explaining it to everybody else. Uh, I also liked in, in other discussions how you've talked about with the Go, it didn't know that it was competing. It didn't know that it won. I mean, really helping us understand the different context uh, and the misapplication of human intelligence as a concept when we're talking about artificial intelligence. Uh, so you, you've done so many interesting things in your career and, and you were inspired to join the Allen Institute, a nonprofit that both does research and creates and supports user-facing products. You have an incubator. Uh, and, and I'm curious, what was it that inspired you? What is it that, what's the void that you wanted to fill with the Allen Institute? So uh, I come, most of my work has been uh, academic. And over the years, 25 years, uh, I really enjoyed the, the teaching, mentoring of grad students, but I increasingly felt that our research is very incremental. One more conference paper, one more brick in the wall, as it were, just uh, very gradually making progress. And I was looking, as I've gotten older, for a way uh, to frankly make more of an impact faster, uh, became more uh, impatient. 
And I was very fortunate that uh, the late Paul Allen, uh, through his team in 2013, uh, approached me and said he wanted to create uh, a research institute that would have a major impact uh, on the field. He'd been passionate about AI uh, for decades. And um, he posed a very tantalizing question. He said, uh, look, AI is making all this progress, but can you take an AI system, give it a textbook, have it read a chapter, and then answer the questions in the back of the chapter, the exercises? And I said, no, we can't. He said, okay, uh, can you make this happen? Uh, and so it was a combination of dissatisfaction with uh, the incremental aspect of research, the vision, right? Paul Allen, Idea Man is the name of his autobiography, is truly uh, a visionary. And then, uh, of course, something that most of us don't have is the resources uh, to make that happen. And so in 2013, there was no institute, there was the plan for one there was just Paul Allen's visions and resources and people interviewed me at the time and they said why are you leaving a, a tenured position at a at a top university for this completely uncertain you know incipient thing and my response was the sky's the limit uh, and so fast forward now uh, seven or eight years we're more than 200 people. We have an active incubator. We have, as you said, uh, a variety of uh, free products that we make available to the public, like Semantic Scholar, we could talk about. And we've published more than uh, 500 uh, academic papers. And I think more than anything, again, we have a phenomenal team. So uh, I feel uh, very fortunate that, uh, that Paul Allen picked me to um, lead, lead this effort. Incredible, and you know, so you've 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 gotten this incredible mandate. You've you've yourself stepped into this new phase of really wanting to drive impact. You've built this incredible team, um, and then you've created several very interesting products or backed several interesting initiatives. You mentioned Semantic Scholar. Uh, you've also worked on novel voice generation, uh, legal uh, matters, and and processes. I'm curious. How do you decide which startups, ideas, initiatives to fund and to back? And what are some of the developments that you're most excited about right now? Well, uh, it does take a lot of uh, judgment and deliberation to decide uh, which projects to get into. The, um, there's a famous saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So we generally work on uh, group projects, which is very different. Uh, academia, often a grad student and her advisor uh, can do remarkable things, but it's typically uh, uh, in the small. And we try to identify things that we can put a team of uh, 10 people, 20 people uh, behind. And that requires uh, both uh, forethought and asking the hard questions. And the hardest question that I like to ask is, what will happen in the reasonable best case? So we all know what's gonna happen in the worst case. This will uh, crash and burn and won't be successful. But what will happen in a reasonable best case? How much impact will we have? And it's surprising uh, how many projects that excludes. 
this is unlikely to have an impact. Will, this will have a, a de minimis impact. This could have a really negative uh, impact. I mean, there's obviously uh, questions that we all struggle with around uh, the cost and benefits and the potential uh, risks associated with AI. But when we identify something that uh, could really have a very positive impact, then we go to the next question. And the next question is, oh, is somebody else gonna do it anyway? Uh, and then when the answer to that is no, now we, we really get going. So to take Semantic Scholar, uh, which really is a poster child project for us, there isn't a lot of money in helping scientists be better at their job. Scientific search, literature search, uh, analysis, finding needle in the haystack. This is all an essential part of the scientific enterprise, but scientists don't pay for it. They get it for free uh, from Google Scholar or from PubMed, you know, in the government's case. So we asked, can we use AI uh, to make a real impact on this problem? And we said, yes. And then we said, look, this really appropriately resides in a nonprofit because uh, you're not going to make money doing this, but it's really necessary. And so that's very much uh, the part of the impetus for, for this uh, big project, which now is uh, five years old and has more than uh, 80 million users uh, annually. So we're very, very proud of it. Well, you know, a common thread through this discussion seems to be your optimism. Your question that you lead with in what you're funding is what, what good can happen? Will anyone else create this good if not you, if not me who? Um, you're, you're constantly talking about the level setting, um, putting reality in our understanding of AI, but it seems at the end of the day, you're pretty optimistic about it. Uh, I know you're also aware of the challenges in AI development. You know, I have spoken with you about bias in AI, which I know you care and are very focused on. Uh, we don't have international standards at this point on uh, what is safe, what is acceptable uh, in our AI development. There are challenges uh, in international competition and in talent complicated questions um, about capacity and, and deployment. And I'm wondering, how do you remain so optimistic about it? What is it in your work that is, is, is fueling this optimism at the end of the day? Well, first of all, Miriam, you're right that I am an optimist by nature, at least after I've had my second cup of coffee in, in, in the morning. And I do see a lot of potential uh, for technology in general and AI in particular to help. Uh, COVID-19, which is obviously a, a horrible thing, is a great example because when uh, the chips are down, when we're confronted with a, a, a deadly pandemic, who do we turn to to save us? Not the demagogues, right? Trump didn't save us, uh, not, right, to, to technologists. So it's very clear to me that with all the things that we worry about, and I'll get to those in a second, if we're gonna find our way out of the thorniest problems facing humanity, whether these are uh, pandemics, uh, poverty, uh, climate change, technology is very much uh, at the forefront there. So just to take climate change for a second, uh, segueing a little bit uh, from AI, um, th there's kind of a, uh, 
guilt-driven mentality of we have to uh, reduce our, our consumption and uh, become greener. And of course we do, right? It's, it, it's been very profligate. But things have gotten so bad that I don't think that's going to solve the problem, right? Because while we're reducing our consumption, you have folks in India and China and elsewhere that are finally getting air conditioning, right? And they don't want to give, give that up, right? It's hot. Uh, over there, uh, getting worse. So where I'm going is, I think we need technologies for carbon sequestration. I think we need to innovate our way out of this problem because this kind of guilt-driven uh, minimization just just isn't going to do it. And I think that's the reality of it. So so I do very much view technologies apart for good. At the same time, I'm also very aware that it can and has been either misused or uh, created uh, a lot of problems. So of course, uh, our energy technology has created uh, and our transportation technology has created uh, this climate change problem. And specifically in AI, uh, the impact on jobs, the impact on privacy, the impact on uh, bias, you know, racism, sexism, and so on, these are all uh, challenges that, of course, uh, your organization and others uh, tries to solve, and that I'm very keenly aware of. So I don't view the world, despite being an optimist, through rose-colored glasses. Everything is going to be great. No, everything is not going to be great. We need to be mindful of uh, the technologies we're developing and their impact uh, in the world. With that, I do see a potential to do good, and that's why our mission is AI for the common good. So for example, you mentioned our incubator. Um, we have various companies uh, that are actually meant to become profitable, right? To be for the incubator to be self-sustaining, but we only focus on ones that have a positive impact in the world, right? We don't do uh, surveillance technology. We don't do uh, technologies that can become uh, addictive to people. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I could give more examples. There's some fascinating stories there. But uh, I guess I'm, I'm, uh, the TLDR of what I said is I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. Well, that seems like a, a safe starting point in, in, in an era of great promise and also great peril and, and uncertainty, such as, as the one we live in. I want to put the rose-colored glasses back on just for a second and drill down one level deeper into AI for the common good and, and, and what you see as the most promising routes for AI to deliver that common good. So, you know, we think a lot about uh, AI and its potential to help accelerate various of the sustainable development goals, for example, including environmental, health, poverty. I'm curious, you know, you're on the front lines, you're supporting a lot of efforts that are trying to move the needle. You talked a bit about scientific discovery um, which is, you know, a, a, a great kind of horizontal uh, example of, of, of AI enabling uh, progress. But I'm curious, you know, what are you most optimistic and bullish about in terms of where AI can really help us um, uh, accelerate progress? Let, let me give uh, three, three examples quickly. The, the first one uh, is completely outside of what we do, but has got to be uh, the most uh, important example of AI's impact for the common good. We have 40,000 people dying on our highways in the US every year. We have over a million injuries. And the studies suggest that over 80% of that 
could be overcome uh, by building uh, self-driving cars uh, that, that are safer. And that's been a vision for a while. It looks to be further out than we thought maybe even just two or three years ago. It's certainly much further than Elon Musk claims, but the good of that cannot be uh, 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 overestimated. Think about how many lives we could save, how many injuries uh, we can prevent. We, we've struck a Faustian bargain with our transportation technology. It's incredibly convenient, but people are dying left and right. We can change that. That in and of itself is sufficient justification for uh, people to get into AI. Now, the second one, as, as you suggested, I really believe that scientists are the ones who are going to help us with uh, so many of the challenges we face. And we are building technologies like Semantic Scholar to help scientists be more effective uh, at their jobs. So that's uh, a second route. And the third one has to do with saving human lives, specifically around medicine. So the third leading, the third leading cause of death in uh, American hospitals is physician error. And they're, uh, it's not because the, their heart's in the wrong place. On the contrary, the heart's in the right place, but they're overworked. They're inundated uh, with, with information. And it's hard to keep track of the information inside the hospital, the innovation outside the hospital. So again, uh, computers in general and AI in particular can really help can monitor for errors, can look over the uh, physician or the nurse's shoulder, can do so much so that we don't have people dying unnecessarily in our hospitals. I, I really believe that the potential here, and that's uh, very much implicit in these last two examples, is of a partnership between people and machines, whether it's in the hospital or whether it's a scientist uh, working uh, with, or a community of scientists working with their AI systems to, uh, to take the world to be a better place. One through line I'm also noticing in those exciting innovations you're talking about, uh, first of all, it's innovation where humans remain in the loop, um, but also those are all fairly regulated areas, transportation, healthcare, um, the scientific community in terms of government support for the research. Uh, you've spoken often about societal changes that could be impacted by AI for good and for bad. Um, immigration policies that have been in that hindering our, our impact uh, and regulatory po policies that perhaps should be in place to alleviate some of the job displacement that is likely to come. And I'm just curious if you were advising the Biden administration, which I hope you are, if there are one to two policies that you would say are the most critical we make sure to put in place to enhance innovation and also inclusive AI. Well, first of all, it's it's uh, it's funny that you mentioned the Biden administration because I've just recently uh, joined a uh, task force uh, working group, which is a group of of twelve people who are uh, hoping to advise the administration about AI. Uh, so that's a long road from that to uh, to having an impact, but at least uh, I'm 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 trying. Um, if I were to advise the the president about what would make the uh, biggest impact on our AI efforts, I would uh, say, number one, the theme that I've been repeating, that so much of AI is about people. And we do 
have a shortage, particularly in this country, of qualified people. And so we need to remove uh, the barriers to entry, if you will. And uh, that actually has uh, at least three legs. Uh, the first and easiest one is, is um, uh, immigration, because we have these tremendously talented people outside the country. We could launch a visa program for uh, AI, more broadly for technologists in general, but uh, specifically for AI to bring AI students, AI entrepreneurs uh, into this country. Uh, but women and underrepresented minorities are, are also um, underrepresented almost by definition in computer science and specifically in AI. So if we can help uh, increase the set of people who are uh, exposed to the subject who are welcomed uh, into AI, if we frankly have more better people working on AI, it's going to go better. Uh, it's, uh, it's that simple. The second uh, piece of advice that I would give is I don't think AI is for everyone. So I'm not going around, you know, meeting people at street corners and saying, hey, you, you got to become an AI expert. Some of us, uh, and appropriately so, actually most of us are not going to become AI experts. But now there's a really interesting question about literacy, right? We have the expectation that everybody should be able to read, that everybody should be able to do uh, at least elementary arithmetic. That's, that's essential to being a functioning member of society. Uh, I think that, that uh, computers and AI have gotten to the point where a certain level of AI literacy is also necessary. Uh, it's necessary because people are, this technology is so powerful and so transformative over time. And a lot of people don't understand what it can and cannot do. So those of us who are not engaged in the actual construction of AI should have AI literacy. And I would ask the president to launch programs that uh, promote and encourage that and quickly. Well, I hope that I hope that he's listening, and I hope that the administration is listening. I think these are great suggestions, uh, and I want to ask sort of one more um, uh, sort of question about advice. You know, you've 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 seen a lot. You're doing really exciting work um, for those young people who are thinking about a career in AI. Hopefully, many of whom are are listening uh, and who are thinking about how can they build a career and maximize their impact and their uh, fulfillment and, and societal value and intellectual uh, fulfillment, um, what would your advice be to them? Uh, what, are, what, are, what are their you know, directions that uh, they could explore? So I, I would start with uh, the most welcoming message that I can give. Don't disqualify yourself if you think, oh, I'm not good at math, I'm not good at programming, I'm not this, I'm not that. Uh, I can't do AI. Nothing could be further uh, from the truth. I think that uh, people should try their hand in it. We have um, a set of phenomenal AI engineers who came from a program in Seattle called Ada Academy that takes people who uh, uh, were trained in other fields and retrains them uh, to be computer engineers in a short, uh, roughly one-year program that has a uh, intensive course component and an intensive internship components. And uh, it's aimed at women, and these women are phenomenal. We didn't hire them because, oh, we should have uh, more women. We, we do want to have more women. We hired them because they kick ass. And each and every one of these women didn't know 
didn't think that they could be a software engineer uh, until uh, much later. So my first message to everybody listening is don't disqualify yourself. My second message is think not just about the short term, but very much about the long term. What is the world going to look like in uh, 20 years, right? Younger people in 40 years. And I think that uh, people who don't have a, a strong understanding of uh, machines are going to be at a significant disadvantage. And so start to educate yourself uh, about this, start playing with it, whether it's at code.org or at you know, Coursera or uh, your local teacher or friend, you know, robotics clubs are, are huge in, uh, in many schools. There's just so many ways to, uh, to get started. And when you get started, don't intimidate by, be intimidated by somebody who started you know, five years before you. And yeah, they're like spouting out all this jargon and they're incredibly uh, techie. It's not a, to, to borrow a phrase, it's not a, a sprint, it's a marathon. And the person who's early in the lead, because they've been doing it since they were eight, isn't necessarily uh, the person who's ultimately the winner. And even more importantly, it's not a winner takes all thing. We're not all competing with each other, right? There's so many opportunities to work together. So the most important thing I can say is a message of welcoming and inclusion. We need you. Thank you for that, Oren. I think it's so helpful how you not only take the time in your writing to demystify AI and, and what it does and what it doesn't do, um, but I think this invitation to all of us to join the field is, is really important and uh, something I hope all of us will take advantage of in our own different way. Um, one thing we'd like to ask before we close, we like to ask all of our guests uh, about something they're excited about, concerned about, looking forward to on the horizon. We ask it in the form of what is your rose, your thorn, and your bud for AI? Well, um, what I'm excited about, being an optimist to, to start with that, and I think it's something that's budding, is the use of AI, which we haven't really talked about, for people who are uh, disabled. Uh, we have a company that synthesizes speech to give a voice uh, to people who can't speak very well uh, and who don't want to sound like the late uh, Stephen Hawking, very mechanical robotic. They can have uh, their own voice um, is, is one example. We're working on making scientific documents more accessible to the blind. Uh, low vision people, right? So much of it is online. And it turns out that scientifically formatted documents with their formulas and figures and tables and multiple columns are hard enough to read if you can see, but if you can't see, it's hopeless. So we're, 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 we're trying to change that. And in more and more arenas, we see where AI can help uh, the, the, the people who are challenged uh, in, in various ways. Uh, the thorn I have is uh, people using AI whose values don't agree with us, right? So China has used AI uh, for surveillance, for uh, supporting uh, a dictatorship, um, uh, for discriminating against minorities. I think that's a huge concern. I see a huge concern in cybersecurity, uh, criminals using AI for... Uh, uh, nefarious uh, purposes. And so I would say uh, uh, 
that's that's the thorn. And uh, I guess to continue the metaphor, the but is 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 the young people, the the young people that I'm encouraging to get involved with the field, either by learning about it or by becoming a, an active part of it. Well, thank you, Oren. That is a great place for us to end uh, with the exciting developments that you are supporting with, with your work and, and the, again, invitation to all of us to find a way to be a part of this important, exciting development in our world, the AI world that is our world and only will be increasingly so. Thank you for taking the time to join us today and for sharing your insights. Thank you, Oren. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Well, Mark, that was certainly another great conversation. What were some of the main takeaways for you? I really enjoyed that conversation. We covered a lot of ground and um, a lot of interesting ground. You know, a couple of things that, that, that jumped out for me. I thought it was very interesting to approach AI from this kind of initial framing of what is the nature of mind where Oren started his career and then everything that flows out of that including looking at AI and how it's embedded inside of human organizational structures and systems. We talk about AI as though it's this force um, that's outside of ourselves, but as Oren so deftly illustrated, actually we structure and frame everything about AI systems, what data goes into them, how they're built, how they're assessed and checked. And so thinking about AI in terms of how we wrap around it the kinds of systems that, that, that we think will get us the best outcomes. That to me was just a really useful way to frame a lot of, a lot of everything else that we talked about in terms of particular use cases um, or challenges. What about you? Anything that jumped out on your side? I agree. I was really uh, struck by his philosophical approach, uh, but yet pragmatic. Um, you know, when I met him, it was a very different context. I had the privilege of speaking with him at the Wall Street Journal. We led a masterclass on bias and AI and seeing how he brought these complicated issues to life for the senior executives in the room was really exciting. And to see how they responded to him and how uh, he got the entire room so engaged. It was a really fun conversation, but such a different context to see how he thinks about what to invest in, uh, to see the importance he places on talent, bringing young people, women, people of color, um, and to find the important ways that he's supporting the inclusivity in the AI that they are developing and the real successes that they seem to be, uh, be able to support in their work is really exciting from broadening the search in, in, in the, the search of, of the research and to make sure that it's more accessible for scientists to find relevant research uh, to the AI that makes it uh, more uh, approachable for those who have vision and hearing challenges. So um, really inspiring and I'm so glad that he is doing the work he's doing. Yeah, that was that was really inspiring. And you know, one other thing that inspired me uh, was was Actually, in, it was an answer to a specific question that I think has broader applicability. When we asked him how he decides which projects to select, and one of the first criteria was, what will happen in the reasonable best case? I thought that was a really interesting question. I think it makes a lot of sense to frame an institute like his approach to how they choose a project, but I think it could also inform things like how we develop AI systems. You know, what's the reasonable best case? And perhaps the corollary of what's the possible worst case 
um, and then figuring out how we can be guided by that in our decisions about you know both what we build AI to do and then how we build AI to do those things. I think that that's a question that uh, I hope we can all ask ourselves more uh, in the years ahead as our capabilities develop even more uh, and as the range of possible uses uh, and benefits, but also challenges and problems continues to expand. Yes, and at the end of the day, given all of his insight, work, and, and experience in this field to remain so optimistic, I think should be encouraging for all of us. Absolutely, yeah, that and, and just the, the message of don't disqualify yourself. Uh, if you're thinking about getting involved in this space, that incredibly welcoming and inclusive attitude, uh, that left me very inspired and, and I'm just you know excited to, to share that with the world. Same here, same here. Great episode. Thanks, Miriam, see you soon. See you, Mark. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 